This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome to the final episode of the Fringeworthy Podcast. Well, at least for 2009. We decided to have a little sending off of the old year and welcoming the new year and to thank all the people who've been listening so faithfully so far with perhaps a little bit more of a personal touch of your hosts. Now, of course, if you don't like us and you're only listening to the podcast to hear about the ideas we have, then you might as well turn off now because this is, as they say, a more personal episode, and we hope that you'll like a little insight into who we are. So, John, tell us something about uh, how you got involved with Fringeworthy and the other things that you're interested in. I've been gaming with Richard for a while. How long is a while, John? started playing D&D the, the same year it came out, and then I basically... Uh, Found out about the Order of Leewitz and their and their games, and that's when I started going there. And I started playing Richard's Dungeon and and his other games. Right. So the Order of Leewitz, which is actually a novel, you're referring to a gaming group, right? Oh yes. Yeah. So the Order of Leewitz was in in, in the Oakland University, and this is Oakland County in Michigan, not Oakland in California. Science fiction group was called the Order of Leewitz. They ran games on Sunday night, and it, yeah, it was the place to go if you were a gamer. Yeah, what year was this? 76, 77. So w- were you in college at the time? Was this a college group? I was still in high school, and I basically had found out about, about them through uh, going to uh, NovaCon, which was a local convention being held at Oakland University. Don't know if it's still being held. It might be. But uh, yeah, and I you know, basically joined the group. Now, as I said, this was a very large gaming group. At the height, we had somewhere close to 30 people, and up to four or five GMs and 30 people they're all playing role-playing games. Uh, basically, there was a, uh, a compact amongst all the GMs that, you know, if you're going to run games there, you, you have to be willing to take folks from other people's games. Maybe that is their characters. And if, if they brought a character in from, say, like uh, Kevin Dockery's world, you'd have to strip them of all their firearms and missile launchers and stuff like that. So you didn't have any closed campaigns. Everybody had an open campaign, but there was some issues about bringing non-standard characters from one one campaign to another. Oh, yeah. Now, the only real closed campaign there ever was was when Richard started running the uh, FTL 2448 campaign. That one definitely was closed campaign. That had somewhere around, we had 12 players playing about 14 characters. So how long did you play with Richard? Three years. Uh, that's when I joined the I joined the army in '80, but I did come back and play a couple more games. But it was like three three very intense, you know, like every Sunday there I was playing games. What is your situation now, in, um like as in gaming and, and just you know what you're doing with anything at this point? I belong to a, a group. The group is called the Emerald City Game Fest. We run what's called the Emerald City Game Feast every Thursday at a, a coffee bar. Uh, but basically, that's a indie games. Or one-shot adventures, or one shot of a, or another part of a of a serial campaign that is not a uh, more like a TV show where you know the episodes really don't connect to each other. Sounds like primetime adventures. Yeah, sort of like that, but but not quite the same. There is some, you know, there is some character growth. I mean, uh, like in our, we've been running a mystery man uh, campaign for a while, and I actually had to retire my character because he because he started becoming too competent. And too good at what he was doing, so I had to retire him. But it also, I also am part of a group of third place gamers. Uh, third place is uh, third, third place books is a very large bookstore, and it also has a large commons area. And we've been running uh, board games there for geez, eight years now, eight nine years. 
So it's, I, I routinely play uh, board games on, on Sunday, and on Thursday I, I, I uh, go and run roleplay. I'm also involved in a uh, over-Skype game. We're doing a, um, a Savage Worlds version of uh, Warhammer 40K. Been doing that for a while, for a while too. So yeah, I've been. So I'm basically in one campaign, and I'm basically a bunch of one shots or or you know another episode of so and so. This is that's where I actually been running. I ran a play test of Savage Incursion. Uh, and if you want to look at the, if you folks want to read the uh, the the blow by blows of the of the uh, of of those sessions, they're available on my on my. Uh, on my one of my blogs, I hate space. The reason why it's called I hate space because that was the, after the first thirty minutes. That's what all the all the players were saying every time something happened on board the Ardana knew. So what about you, Bruce? How did you uh, how did you get started in all this? Well, I originally started by hating D and I was very religious, though I wouldn't call myself religious. You know, back in when I was a teenager. And when I got into college, one time I ran across a couple of people that I knew who were sitting around a table and playing this game that they called Dungeons and Dragons. And I listened to it for, oh, I don't know, maybe five minutes. And I said, you know, this seems kind of cultish to me. And of course, they all gave me this stern stare, like, you know, idiot. And, uh, <laughs> and no, it's not. And said okay and so i turned around <laughs> and walked away uh, years later i was running a pizza store in huntington west virginia and this one of our drivers came in and he was all hot for this game called dungeons and dragons and he came and showed me this map which had all this stuff it, it was a maze essentially and he said we've got a minotaur over here and i got this over there and that over there and i'm like i'm looking at it going this doesn't seem very interesting to me uh, it's just, it seems kind of, a, I don't know, sloppy, because I was looking at somebody's homebrewed map. Right. So I, I wasn't too impressed. And, but then uh, one of the religious publications that I read very much came out tooth and nail against Dungeons and & Dragons. And I'm reading this r- complete uh, repudiation of, of this game, and I'm going, wow. This doesn't seem like the game I was looking at. <laughs> right? Is the, you know, I, this is this is an amazing you know, uh, uh, declaration of how terrible a game can be. And really, I hadn't seen anything like this, uh, this kind of, of of passion against a game ever in my life. So I said, right. well, okay, I, I've got to find out, you know, what it is that they're really hating about this game. So I went out and I got myself the pl- a player's manual, which was twelve bucks in those days. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember when I was thinking twelve bucks. I was like, man, this book is expensive. Well, I, I actually, uh, my point was it wasn't that expensive. It was only twelve dollars. Well, to I mean, me, granted, it was granted, that was okay. That was three meals at, at McDonald's. Okay, sure, mm-hmm. but still. Um, uh, <laughs> so I got the get book and I read the thing, and I'm like, that didn't sound like what they're talking about. And I read it again, and I said, no where are they getting this from? And But by that time, I started to realize that this was a pretty cool concept. Um, actually, I didn't get the advanced player's manual. I actually got the original uh, red box set. Uh, and, and reading through this, I said, this sounds all kind of pretty cool. And I started messing around with it. And then I said, well, I don't really know enough how to play that. I don't know anybody to play with this game because this guy had left the pizza store by then. 
So I went over to um, the uh, Marshall University, which was right there in Huntington. And it was literally across the street from where I was working in this pizza store. And, uh, and there was this, you know, Marshall University Science Fiction Society. And I joined it, uh, went to a couple of meetings and I asked them about this game. And they said, yeah, there's some people who play this game. Uh, they're over, you know, they'll, they'll be playing next Friday. You want to go over and play? I'm like, okay. And I, and I did, I went over and I made up a character and, and actually at the game itself, cause I didn't. Uh, they were playing the advanced version of it, not the basic version. I had to roll up a character, so of course I rolled up a fighter who was the most, you know, who actually I don't remember. I think it was a fighter. I can't quite remember. That character died. <laughs> I heard almost every I tell people your very first character is probably going to die, so don't get too invested in it because you don't know how to play the game. Um, right. And he did. He died. One of the other members of the group had decided to basically rip off the, the rest of the party. They, they, they locked us in a room. They said, if you give us, you know, uh, a, one of your picks from the treasure each, then I'll let you out. Otherwise I'm going to leave you here to die. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to put up with that. I'd rather die than do that. So I did. <laughs> Next week I had a new character, and that right. was a uh, that was a fighter. And and see, back then, like it's, uh, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, I literally rolled these characters up three d six, right, and just put the stats where they were. I didn't have a single. My highest stat, I believe, was a twelve, and I put that in Constitution and made him a fighter. It didn't help me a bit. It just made him say better against Death Shock and stuff. So, right. I, I mean, my my uh, I had a nine uh, in strength for my fighter. Yeah, nobody would would play this character today. They would think it would be absurd to play such a you know broken, uh, worthless character. But that character got through tenth level. Well, you know what? Some people would. I mean, it depends on on your player. Like like I would take that as a challenge. I would play that character. Right. Well, and there were lots of people that that you know. Soon we we changed over to other systems, not systems, but methods of generating characters and such. Yeah. yeah. But um, very quickly, I came to the conclusion that. Nobody was playing the game I wanted to play. I mean, this was supposed to be a heroic fantasy of, you know, uh, knights and daring dues and stuff like that. And all they wanted to do was kick in the door and kill the monster and take the treasure. <laughs> so I actually started running games for whoever would play just so I could run the kind of scenarios I wanted to play. Um, and uh, most of my games were I, uh, I ended up getting all the cast offs. I got the 14 year old kids whose mothers dropped them off at the uh, if, well, first at the science fiction meeting and then at my house and got themselves a free afternoon every week for uh, almost 10 years. Right. Uh, I saw these kids go from to, to graduate high school, some of them, you know, and, and go on. But that was that was always a, a point to me that I wanted to play a game that actually addressed real issues where it wasn't, you know, if we were role playing, I wanted it to really be role playing and not just, you know, just slinging dice. And as I say, killing the monsters and taking the treasure. Part of what we did as a science fiction club was we decided every year we were going to have a science fiction convention. We were a very poor club, but we were at a university, and the university, because we were a club, would give us space. And we actually took over an entire academic building and used all the classrooms and lecture halls to run our convention in, and it was called MunchCon. It was a free convention. For like the first four years of it, we never charged anybody a dime for it, and we ran a three-day convention. That's pretty uh, awesome. Did you have a right. good turnout? Oh, yeah. We had uh, two, three hundred people show up at this convention. 
And the reason we were able to do that was because West Virginia had a Council for Humanities or something like that, and they would give us like $1,500 to pay for the expenses of bringing in a guest speaker. So, of course, we would we brought in Fritz Lieber or we brought Ooh. in Boris Vallejo. Or oh, really? Yeah. So we brought in some serious – and, boy, I want to tell you something. You never saw so many good-looking women yeah. ever. When they brought in Boris Vallejo, they cl- flocked around him like fl- moss to a flame. Every one of them dressed to the nines with their little portfolios and their hair all brushed out and shiny. And Mr. Vallejo, would, what could I, what can I do to make you look at uh, Give me enough time to look at my portfolio. And I'm just going, man, you know, just. <laughs> well, considering he's his own favorite figure model when it comes to guys. He was an absolutely. I mean, the most gentle. I mean, he, talk about your classic Spanish gentleman. That was him. He was impeccable. He dressed impeccably. He spoke impeccably. I don't think the man could, you know, uh, you know, could have said anything wrong if he wanted to. I mean, he just he was so so nice. I mean, he walked up to the registration table and, and he asked. He says, "How long have you been sitting at this table?" And this one guy was there. Well, I've been working here about six hours. He said, and he, and he looked down there. He says, uh, "Is is that a?" Uh, a game? He said, no, it's a, a puzzle I got in the deals room of a dragon. He says, really? He says, because it's one of my dragons. And, and he, he said, yeah, I know. That's why I got it. He says, well, here, let me remark that for you. So he picks it up. He draws a little dragon on the guy's jigsaw puzzle of a dragon, signs it with his big boar's phileo. I mean, talk, gives this guy a, a once-in-a-lifetime little prize just because he was so devout and sitting there and, and, and registering people and stuff like that. And then we went off to lunch. And this is the kind of huge generosity this man had, and, uh, and I'm sure still does. And so it was wonderful having him as a guest. We had great guests. I was involved in a lot of different things. In one year, I, I was never the, actually the con chair, though one year my wife my first wife was the con chair, and therefore I was the con chair <laughs> because you know there were a lot of things that she was too busy doing, and I, she just would you know, hand them to me, and I would do them. Uh, so I got to see pretty much all aspects of running a convention. Uh, I ran gaming one year. Most of the time I was busy actually running games because the first year we had MunchCon, I had gone up to a little convention in Detroit, and because we had a uh, a conference for a computer program, which was a competitor for the D-Base program. It was called FoxPro, and they had their yearly developers conference there, which happened to be in Cleveland, which is only 50 miles away from Detroit. And it just so happened that they had a convention there in Cleveland. And I went to uh, this little convention, and here they were playing these games, this company called, you know, Try to, uh, it was called Tiki Tacky or Tri Tac Games. Tacky Tack. Yeah, they were doing Monster Squash, which I thought was an absolutely wonderful game of taking clay and making monsters and attacking each other's monsters and ripping the limbs off and pounding the putty on the tabletop. Absolutely huh. ridiculous game, but so cathartic. You just, I mean, you just can't understand. This is the kind of game you should be playing during finals. <laughs> but anyways, I and and I saw their games and stuff. And then so the following year when we had our first convention, I wrote Richard to Holka, whose address was on the back of uh, the copy of Monster Squash I had. And I said, hey, why don't you send me some of your product and I will sell it. I will demo it first and I'll sell it at our convention and send you uh, uh, whatever the – the, you, you demand you know, for it. And he said, well, if you're going to do all that, why don't I just come down and do it myself? 
which of course I said, fine, you know, and he came down and he stayed with me and uh, we had a great time. And he showed me some galleys of the Fringeworthy game he was doing, but he never explained what it was. It was all very mysterious. And it wasn't until I actually went to another convention sometime later where I actually got to play Fringeworthy as a demo at at a convention for the first time. And when I played it, I was like, oh, this is what it's about. I couldn't understand what fringes of time and space meant. It was all very odd. And I think it's one of the reasons it's hard to explain what the game is to some people because they don't have no idea. You, you go through interdimensional space. What's that? So you have to use other things like Amber's uh, Pathways uh, mm-hmm. to explain what it's like. You know? And then there's also some shows that are similar to it, and, uh, like Sliders and others. I played Friends really first. So it was a really great game. Okay? But as I said, it, was hard to, to get pe- it wasn't hard to get people to play it because back then the club had – well, we had uh, 30 or 40 people in it, but they were mostly interested in actually reading science fiction and, and write, uh, doing artwork and comics and things like that. And there was only a smaller group that was actually interested in gaming. Over time, those two switched, where the gamers basically took over the, the, uh, the, the club and some of the people who had been club members actually quit because they didn't find enough there to interest them anymore. But uh, but there every year there would be five or six people say, okay, I'm starting a new campaign. Now this sounds really great, but have you ever thought about actually playing in five or six campaigns in a single year? I mean, these people were in college; <laughs> they weren't actually expected to study. So, of the five or six new campaigns that were being started on top of the existing campaigns, usually only about three or four actually survived, and uh, not everybody played in those three or four, but. I had my little one on the side, like I said, and I always was asking people to play, and I always had about six to eight players. And so when I said, hey, let's play this Fringeworthy game, they were willing to give it a try, and we had some good times with it, though I really don't think I was a very good uh, game master as far as running a a more realistic game. And, of course, it was so much crunchier than um, D&D even in those days that it it was quite a challenge for me to, to run the game system, but I did. Oh yeah, same here. I mean, I yeah, I ran crunchy, full crunchy mode too. I would argue that the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, if you play with every rule that's in the book, all the armor modifiers, all the weapon proficiencies and such, you know, and, and certain weapons against certain armor types and everything, it gets to be pretty crunchy too. I, I, I oh, yeah. would say it's quite a contender. Right. The only thing I didn't do full on in in D and D was I did not use the armor modification chart. That, because to me, that only worked if you were fighting another knight, and all the time we were fighting monsters, and so they never, it never applied. It was only when we had player-on-player fighting that, we, that the modifiers would ever apply. <laughs> so, uh, so anyways, uh, what really got me, in, and I, I, I love Friends really, but what really kicked in the, uh, for me was Bureau 13, because Bureau 13 really pushed the idea that you were in an organization that was out trying to do good that you really were trying to be a moral force in the world against real evil, I mean bad evil. And you had to make a lot of moral decisions during the games. You had to decide whether that person needed to die, uh, whether that monster could be somehow conserved. You know, whether the uh, and, and sometimes the people that the monsters were threatening were worse than the monsters themselves. So, you know, and, and the Richards games reflected that in the experience where they say you got uh, extra points for not using violence or if you came up with a peaceful resolution 
um, you know, if you used equipment effectively, you got experience. It wasn't just you got experience for X number of experience for killing this monster, which was a huge seat to me, a huge sea change in philosophy from what I'd seen in D and D. So um, I really liked the game for that reason, and I played and, was, and I've been playing Richard's games since 1982. Richard's, I thought Richard said he, he brought the game out in '85, but I really think it was earlier than that um, because. You know, I, I graduated high school in 78. I loved this game. I promoted it. I went to conventions and demoed it. Fin- uh, finally, I started writing stuff for it. I created uh, Outpost Games, which produced supplements for uh, Bureau 13 and also Fringeworthy. And I was, it's just been a huge cheerleader for <laughs> Richard Tolkien and his game systems from for 30 years. Didn't you do Infinite Crossroads? Right. Infinite Crossroads, I was the editor and, um, and wrote some of the pieces in it. Uh, that, I did that after um, I, we stopped doing Terror Watch, which was the Bureau 13 newsletter. I basically thought after a while that nothing was coming out for Fringeworthy, and so I figured it was kind of languishing. And I thought that you know someone else should carry the torch for Bureau 13. Uh, there was a news group for it, and, uh, and so I said, well, let's push on – on Fringeworthy, so I started doing that, uh, doing a, just basically a newsletter, uh, which uh, which was 40 pages long, eight by an by 11, so it wasn't you know just a little pamphlet or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, the more I played it, the more I realized that, and I think it has something to do with maturity. I realized the great potential of this game, that it really was the uber game that Richard had always wanted it to be. Uh, that it literally was completely cross genre. It could connect any campaign with any campaign. There was really no limitations to the game, which again worked against it because most games that are very successful have a very narrow focus. You play the wow. game to do this, but with Fringeworthy, you were exploring. But you, and, and the interesting thing that was the, you had to come up with good stories for the players to do. Most of the time, when in the early days when I played Fringeworthy, I was mostly had a weird setting that I wanted them to go through, and uh, I was mostly just kind of wowing them with the uh, uh, special effects. Right. Uh, but later on, I actually yeah, same here. Oh, I'll add my bit here right now. So same, same here. I've I had the same experience too, where some of my worlds were there just to wow the players, and more than anything else. But you know it's 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 funny because um, Fringeworthy, in that essence, Fringeworthy does encompass the true, the, the true greatest facet of science fiction, and that's to take a look at society from an outside perspective, to take man and put him in um, a different setting, so that you can look at um, you can look at the human condition that we live in now from the outside by placing man outside of that and then looking inward. So it's like much the way Star Trek did it, the, the famous episode of the the black and white man versus the white and black man, it, it gave them an opportunity to look at how ridiculous prejudice can be from a science you know, from from a science fiction standpoint. That's something that's something that you couldn't really do to that level in a real story. You would you had to do it had to be science fiction to do it. Oh yes. And that's where science fiction really shines, and that's where Fringeworthy can really shine because you are traveling to different worlds, and you have the opportunity to set that up every week when you do an adventure. So it's just it's it's really like it's like true science fiction of, of the of the best kind. 
You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Uh, Peter, how did you get started with all this? Well, back in, I guess it was about 79, my brother came home. He was, uh, he went to Macon University, and he came home. He's about 10 years older than me, so he comes home, and he was telling me all about this, this game D&D that he discovered, um, that, that the college, all the guys in college were playing. And I was really interested, and I, and I remembered it, because we were living in Florida at the time, and then... I didn't really get involved with anything D&D-wise because at the time when he told me, I was only like eight years old. But then I moved to Maryland. It was roughly two years after he told me that, but I kept it in my head. For some reason, I, re- I kept remembering that and saying, you know, I really want to see this. I really want to try this. And it was, I was in the fifth grade, and that would have been around 80, 81. And there was, I had moved up to Baltimore to live with some other relatives. And the library down the street from the house had a sign-up it said there was a, a D&D club. So I went in and I, I tried it out. And I loved it. I fell in love right away. And, and like you were saying, Bruce, my first character, 3D6. And I put whatever I rolled right on down the line, the six stats. And I rolled a nine for every stat. I had a perfectly a perfectly average character. Wow. I, that wasn't yeah. hard to do. That wasn't easy to do. <laughs> No, it was it was hilarious because I rolled at like nine, 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 nine. I was like, I have all nines. So like, and they all started laughing, and I was like, what is that funny? Or what, what? What's is that bad? And they were all laughing. Like, no, no, it's it's fine. It's it's just, fine because you can play every one of the base characters. They all have a minimum of nine for right. their for their primary stat. Yeah, right. So I named him Mediocrities. Uh. <laughs> I played him for a while. He got killed, I don't know, like within a month. Uh, we played every Saturday. He got, he got wiped out within a month. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I was, you know, this young guy, 11 years old or whatever, and all the other guys were like several years older than me. And so I was the first guy to go eventually. But, you know, then I made up other characters and we played. It was, it was fun. I, the, the library days were really fun for me just because they were, the, you know, they were the early, the very early days. And then, of course, I recruited my friends. But I couldn't get any of them to go to the library. They were all too, like, I don't know. They were scared to go play with the older kids or whatever. So I started running games. And I was the game master for several years. And then um, I started hanging out with this other guy. And he wound up becoming the game master. It was just just the way it goes. And it turned out I was a better player than a game master. And that's still true to this day. I'm a much better player than I am a game master. So we play. I play with this this group of guys. Same guys I play with today, as a matter of fact. It's amazing. You know, for for since I don't know, like '84, I've been playing with the same group of guys. And there's a few differences here and there, but for the most part, it's the same core group. And we played everything. I mean, we played all kinds of stuff. We had our vampire phase. We had our cyberpunk phase. We had, you know, we did Fringeworthy. And we it was funny because we discovered Fringeworthy. I guess it was about '86, maybe. There was this warehouse, the distributor, the Armory. Oh yeah, I know the Armory. You know the Armory? Okay, based in Maryland? Uh-huh. Okay, well, we used to go there, and they would let us go in the back area and pick out stuff. They had a store up front, but they'd also let us go in the back. So we would go in the back, we'd look around, and uh, my friend uh, John it's found... Big, it's like the biggest candy store in the world for you guys. Is it really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it was. I'm just saying, for you guys, it would have been like the biggest candy store in the world. Yeah, it was awesome. They had like everything, and it was like stuff you never saw anywhere because they were, I guess they were a distributor, 
So we're going through, and my my buddy John picks up picks up this this Fringeworthy game, and it was the you know the the Combound Blue Book, right? And it was always it was always Blue Books. Okay, all right. Well, it was, <laughs> that was this, so right. Richard had signature colors for all of his games. Okay. Okay. Uh, Fringeworthy was blue. Okay. Euro thirteen was orange. Uh, right. FTL was green, and Incursion was yellow. Okay. So, Who knows so what he's, he's going to do for Hardwired, Hinterland, and uh, Elfwinds. So, anyway, we're, we're looking at this fringe with him, and we're like, I don't know, man. And my friend John's like, we should get it. He's like, he's like this is really weird. This is, this is like different. He's like, because we're, we were able to flip through it and everything. And he's like, I was like, but it looks like such a homebrew type of you know deal. It doesn't look professional like these other games. And so we were like, we're like, all right, what the hell? We'll get it, you know, because it was cheap anyway. Um, it was cheaper than I think everything else in there. They've always been less expensive than other games. Right. So we, we picked it up and we were like, all right, what the hell? We'll give it a shot. And we started playing it and we we're like, it turned out all the adventures we were having were just, were just awesome because it just, if the door was wide open, we could do anything, you know? And of course we emulated every movie. Um, right. we, we played Predator and Aliens and, um, you name it. We played Indiana Jones, whatever. We, we were everywhere. And, um, and well, that then, sounds like a lot of fun, Blix. It sounds it, like it, you guys really had a good time with it. We did. We went all over the place, and it colored everything. No role-playing was ever the same after that. It literally changed our role-playing style. We have never played I, – I mean, maybe. I'm trying to think. We may have had one or two campaigns over the last 20 years that maybe we might have stuck with one, like one era, but somehow portals wind up appearing in every game at some point and we start traveling the French paths and then that's it and and then we're you know we're going to other worlds and everything and it was just it's just it's so much fun it's so it's so hard not to do it so you know you're playing inside cyber that was our big thing cyberpunk for a long time our biggest longest campaign was a cyberpunk campaign that had a that had a it was an alternate and it had a French path in Arizona, or, or I'm sorry, a portal, had a portal in Arizona. And we ran that campaign for like four years, I think, with those characters. And it was just so much fun. We weren't based out of Idet, we were based out of uh, Night City. We were kind of, we were pirates, really, I mean, from a French, from an Idet standpoint. But we weren't bad guy pirates. We were more like uh, French mercenaries. We didn't, we weren't robbing people in the French pass. We were just doing missions. You know, we would go to worlds and just find stuff to do. Yeah. But we weren't like we weren't like bad guys. I mean, yeah. you were troubleshooters. Yeah, if you yeah, saw yeah. if you saw trouble, you shot it. Shot it, right, right, right. But we weren't looking to like rob and rape people and stuff like that. We just we would go someplace and we would find stuff to do and we would do it. But that's how we got involved in French really, and that that's been my experience, and it's just been nonstop. And right now we're playing a Savage Worlds campaign, and I don't know if French Worthy's going to make an appearance in it, but. It probably will. <laughs> well, especially when we come out with a Savage World Edition. Yeah, right, right. And we want to, we want to, um, you know, give it a run before it's released. So we'll be a good playtest group for that because we'll just throw it into our game and run with it with the characters that we have now and give it a really good, um, you know, really good massage. Right. Well, the the game system can can either help or hinder a fringeworthy game, but it doesn't change the the fringeworthy game in its core. You know that's you know that's good no matter what system you use. Talking about going multiple worlds and so and portals appearing everywhere for a while there, uh, Fringeworthy was in every game Richard was putting out. 
uh, in the um, not not the not the last release of FTL, but in the release prior to F- the pre- previous version of FTL, it's written right into the rules that there is a portal on the Form Hut station. You talking about the Green Binder one? Yeah, the Green Binder one. There's a portal. I have to look. I, have to, I haven't read that for a while. I have to check it out. Yeah, but it's going there. There's a friend, there's a portal in there. There's a portal there to the Fringeworthy Pathways. I'm going. Okay, let's go there. Yeah, let's go to FTL 2448, and this. Oh wow, there's a lot more there to worry about. So, uh, I think we should. I think it'd be interesting to, to talk about, like you know, being that we're, we're all very experienced Fringeworthy players. Um, what has been like your guys, your favorite? experience or adventure like what what has been the, the one thing you've done using Frenchworthy that has really been extremely like fun or interesting or memorable in some way i mean it could even be bad memorable it could be like your worst adventure but you remember it i'll, I'll think i'll start with it with bad memorable i had set up basically the players had gotten complacent that i wasn't going to kill them then i set up a situation where i had a big red button of don't go here Basically, they were they were in the Chayan Empire, a Chinese Mayan hybrid empire, and there was an area that was complete that was locked that basically was forbidden for anyone to enter, and they said, "Let's go there." You know, there's there's guys in power armor walking around, making quite obvious that this is a no-go place, but we want to go there, and I start try to stymie them and keep trying to try to stymie them, and they find and they get they're getting ticked off as though as though they this was the place for them to go, and it it wasn't. It was a military base. They're trying to break into a military base for this, you know, for a culture that you know has you know power armor. And they said, "Let's take them on." So they went back and got more guys. Came back, and it was the biggest massacre ever of PCs I ever I had ever had my pleasure of ever doing in my life. So you did them all in? Uh, actually, the core team escaped. They're the, they're the ones that decided let's keep our characters alive and leave, <laughs> but uh, but the other folks. I mean, there was this mowed down. Uh, they're, they're talking about a guy in basically the equivalent of uh, uh, you know, stor- you know um, Highline uh, Starship Trooper armor, you know, and they're going out there with rifles. So these idiots all ran in there. Oh and, yeah, they got mowed got their, down. Got themselves mowed down. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was just horrendous. I'd never do that again. Well, it taught me that if you put a big red button that says don't push, what the players are going to do? Push it. They're going to push it. Oh, yeah. Well, dramatically, they have to. Yeah. But at the time, I thought I put enough warnings up that it was a it's obvious don't go there. Oh, no. I have a story that uh, to understand is that, as I mentioned before, um, I was a very religious person, and I lived a very apparently upright life so you know i was like a i don't want to use the word paragon because that's that, that that's not what i was but I'm, I'm basically i i had all these standards and everyone knew that and so people got used to me being this really really nice guy and uh, and and always helping them and, and and never saying anything bad to anybody and and that that kind of person and i was running frenchworthy and this was back uh, in the days when doctor who had just come to America and was on PBS stations. And our players, players, everybody in the entire science fiction group just was absolutely gaga over Tom Baker and then Peter Davidson who followed him. So one of the players decided he was going to make a new character. And this character was from a portal that went to a world called Gallifrey. 
Uh-huh. And his character was Dr. Peter Davidson. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, with a with a, a piece of celery on his on his coat and the whole thing like that. And he said, but 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 he's he's in IDET. He's you know he's working with IDET and 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 he was a very charismatic young man and had all these people just loving all this all the stories he was making up because he was also an artist and he would draw comics and all kinds of things and so our campaign basically became a sort of a doctor who uh series doctor who and his troop going through the fringe paths now, of course, there was no TARDIS or anything like that because that wasn't part of the game. So he said, well, wait a second. Okay, I'm a really, really smart guy. I've got like an intelligence of, you only go up to 20, but I'm sure it's higher than that. And I'm like, okay, so what do you, what do you mean? You know, what, what are you going for here? He says, well, I, says, I think that um, I, I would know something about robotics. And, I said, uh, and I'm thinking here, okay, he's thinking about K-9. You know, the little robotic dog that was in the TV series. I said, okay, sure, that would be fine. You you can go and have you know uh, uh, robotics and he says it's, and then he says well can I can I you know make as AI to the point where I could actually make something that actually was intelligent I said well you could certainly make it so it was close to intelligent he said okay that's fine the next week he shows up with a black Lamborghini with an artificial intelligence in it so now we've got Knight Rider slash Doctor Who okay and the car was called Christine. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, from from the uh, novel, and you know, so you, you just kind of see the influence. All these influences are coming into the game, and he had some other robots, but he loved this car, and he did all kinds of stuff with it. So we went out on a particular, um, and, and we went on all kinds of missions, and and it, we had a really good time with the whole thing like that. But there was another player who decided that female companion of this guy and wanted to develop the relationship a little bit <laughs> and found and, and, and unbeknownst to me, okay, somehow found herself in competition with the car for the, the, the doctor's affections. And it finally came down to a literally a verbal throwdown where she goes to him and she said, uh, it goes to the car and she says, he says, you should back off. He says, you know, this is, I'm the proper companion for the doctor. I'm a woman. I'm real. You know, I'm, you know, I can, you know, I have feelings. I, you know, he says, I'm not, you know, this huge, this bucket of bolts, this thing, you know, well, he, he says, well, I, the doctor made me. Therefore, I'm exactly what he wanted. That makes me the perfect companion. And it went back mm-hmm. and forth. And she finally said, she says, you know, I'm everything, you know, uh, uh, th- that you can never be. You know, I, I'm, I'm a human person. I have a soul. He says, I, you know, can, can feel for the doctor the way you never can. And then, and then the room went quiet. She looked over at me and, you know, thinking that she'd won. And I sat there for a second, and I said, but I don't weigh as much. <laughs> you could have heard a pin drop. She just sat there and just made fish motions with her mouth. <laughs> just dumbfounded. And then, oh, just the, the whole room just erupted. <laughs> and it was, uh, um, and uh, she stopped playing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, well, you know, I kind of really torpedoed her character. Everyone just, you know, she, 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 she wanted to play the doctor's companion, and obviously I, I, I thwarted her. Um, and I was the GM, so I felt bad about it at the same time. Uh, 
He says that just came out of nowhere. And um, anyways, the good times. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Our group usually play from a different angle, though. We would almost always start out with Ident, and then we would almost always leave Ident at some point. And it was just the way our game master ran things. It was there was always some kind of corruption or something. We'd always be and we'd always wind up not being able to trust Ident. Like there would be he liked using Mellers a lot. I know you hear me talking about Mellers a lot. I guess it's it's mainly because of the games that we played. Mellers made appearances quite often, so we would. We would eventually always wind up leaving Idet no matter what campaign we ran in. And we would play these you know, these mercenary types, not exactly pirates, because the way, you know, when we talk about pirates, we're always talking about, you know, these guys that are like robbing fringe travelers and stuff. And we really weren't into that, but we were, were definitely rogue agents. And uh, this one time I was playing this, this one character, and he had gone into this world, and, and uh, I'm not sure where my game master got the, this these fuzzies from, but I think it's something related with Fringeworthy. But he went to this world where they had these these little guys called Fuzzies. And in his game, he made them so that they could detect Mellers. Like, they, whenever they detect, detected a Meller, their hair would stand up. Little Fuzzies? Yeah, yeah. They had little chopper diggers? Yeah, choppy diggers, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's from H.P. Piper. Okay. Little Fuzzy. Well, he, like I said, he stole it from somewhere. Anyway, so I went to this world, and I was having this Fuzzy that followed him around everywhere. And he was, like, cool with it. And this thing would like this fuzzy would like travel around in his backpack for the most part, and whenever he but he had the ability to detect Mellers, so um, and I think that's part of the reason why my character carried him around with him, put up with all his antics. We went back to Earth Prime because uh, I was still a member of IDED at the time, and the president was making a tour, and he detected somebody on the presidential party. Now he didn't know who it was, like he could detect it as in he knew who it was. He just knew a Meller was in the vicinity. So it wasn't like a end-all, be-all kind of thing. It was just like one of those guys is a Meller. So I'd be like, oh, crap, okay. So the presidential party was going by, and he detected one of them. So then my character was like, oh, crap. It could be the president of the United States is a Meller or somebody close to him. So what do I do? I can't, you know. So he's trying to tell people, and they're like, yeah, right, whatever. And um, so he wound up having to go completely crazy because he had to like he's like well i gotta stop him and i don't know anything else to do so he attacked the presidential party and held him hostage and it was like a big fight broke out as as you can naturally expect because they're like you know the secret service agents agents started shooting at me so i had to start shooting back and um so eventually it turned out it was the vice president and my character wound up getting a big reward and everything. Now, he got all shot to hell, but he wound up getting a big reward and you know getting a medal and everything. It turned out it was the vice president was a Meller, and everybody found out when I shot him in the head, killed him, and he dusted. And they were like, "Holy crap!" So don't you Jake was, was bad? It, it, but he was all by himself. He wasn't with the rest of the group. This is an adventure that me and the DM ran. It was it was a solo adventure for my character. So it was me against like the whole base and the president and Secret Service agents. It all, so you had a great time. I did, but that that was my favorite experience. That was that was really wild. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix 
Remember, bullets speak louder than words.